Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your kind spirit guide me on ground that is level. That is Psalm 143, verse 10. Welcome back to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast for another National Adoption Month episode. I'm so excited to bring you um, another adoptive parent guest. Uh, This week, we have an adoptive mom on and she'll be sharing her story shortly. Uh, But first, I'd love for you to check out um, some of the great resources that we have for you for your journey. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. In addition to our amazing support group, We also have some online trainings available for you, um, especially if you are parenting a kiddo um, or more than one who may have been uh, prenatally exposed to alcohol or drugs, uh, whether you have a diagnosis of a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or not. um, We've got some great training um, that really I highly recommend for every adoptive foster and kinship caregiver um, vital resources, along with trauma training, that connected parenting training. Um, I believe every parent needs to have training in FASD as well. So we provide that for you. Um, Coming up on the calendar, I have a three-hour workshop online on FASD. That is Wednesday, November 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And then in December, I can't believe December, right around the corner, I'm doing a one hour lunch and learn. It tends to go to almost 90 minutes, but with the Q&A, um, but it's one hour. It is on Wednesday, December 13th at noontime Eastern. Um, we'll be exploring the symptoms of FASD, how prenatal alcohol exposure affects the brain. We'll be exploring a little bit of the neurobehavioral model um, for a brain-based approach um, to parenting kiddos who were prenatally exposed. So we don't just tell you about FASD, but we equip you with some great parenting tools that help you on your journey. And as a, as a mom of two diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, I know personally how challenging this journey can be. Um, and I'm here to support and equip you um, for that journey. So link in the show notes below. Um, and you can check out and sign up for any of those trainings on our website, justicefororphansny.org. Also, please be sure to subscribe or follow 
this podcast. We are um, on all the podcast platforms, but we are also now uh, have a YouTube channel where you can watch the video of these podcasts if you're interested. So be sure to to follow along and, and subscribe. Now to our guest, Melissa Jacobus has been advocating for her adopted children and the rights of all individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder since 1998. At the national level, she is a parent advocate and member of the Justice Task Force for the FASD for FASD United. Um, she serves on the advisory committee for FASD communities and served as a member of the Speakers Bureau for the Center Centers for Disease Control, Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Southeast Regional Training Center. In 2019, Ms. Jacobus was inducted into FASD United's Tom and Linda Daschle FASD Hall of Fame. Her book, The Accomplice, was written as a message of hope and is a call to action to bring awareness to assist the one in 20 who are impacted by this invisible disability of FASD. So we have her here with us today. Please welcome Melissa Jacobus. Hey, Melissa. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yes, I am so excited. I read your book. I have it here, The Accomplice, last year and couldn't wait to be able to connect with you to have you on the show. Um, I, too, am an adoptive mom of kids from Eastern Europe, and um, two of mine are diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, so let's start just with if you could give our listeners a little background, what led you to pursue adoption? Okay. Um, about 20, 20 years, over 20 years ago, uh, I I knew when I was young, I always uh, thought about adoption and thought about foster care. I had a good friend of mine that her family uh, was very involved with foster care. And uh, I got married and, and uh, the it was pretty much the plan was that adoption would be the way we would have our family. And so um, there were, you know, availability for babies, but uh, it was looked like older children adopting older children. They needed a home. So it was kind of a mission that these older children needed home. And uh, that's how it started. Yeah. So how old were your kids when they did come home and join your family? Um, it was right around the age of three and a half to six or seven. And um, uh, it, they were uh, from um, Russia and uh, they didn't speak the language, but that was OK, because you don't need to speak when you're, you know, love and you can figure it out. So uh, yeah. that was never a problem. Yeah, I remember that when we adopted from Ukraine, it was an adventure, right? Because our kids were came home in, in, a, in a very similar, our, our age ranges were three to nine. And um, the nine-year-old knew like a handful of English words, but, yeah. you know, the younger kids. So it was it was kind of like an adventure. It was this crazy adventure to get them to, to you know, as they were learning English and, and discovering that. And, and um, you know, I remember the craziness of it all, but... Um, blessed craziness at the same time, yeah, but yeah. it did get hard eventually for, for us. And I know for you, so yeah. um, what, you know, what was that adjustment like? Um, Cause they didn't all come home at the same time. Did you do like, one no, there was two. It, yeah. There, there was, um, there were payment two, two groups. Two groups. Uh, okay. And there were two families. Um, 
separate families. Um, and uh, so biologically, they weren't, they were related in two and two. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I you just kind of be theatrical with talking to them and, and making sure their needs are met. They want to, you know, be clothed. They want to, you know, be fed and they want a safe place to live and they want to have fun. And they knew uh, baby Russian. So they really didn't yeah. know English. I mean, Russian that well. So uh, actually I spoke to Russian people that were friends of mine, friends that were Russian and, and they said, get them into, immerse them into English, get them into English. Yeah. But of course I had all the Russian things all over the house and I still do. It, it's very yeah. meaningful to keep their, uh, you know, their history and, and, and yeah. alive. Yeah, we did very much the same thing. And I, I do remember uh, in those early days before they had a grasp on the language. Um, and like you said, you know, you're, you're, you, they want to be fed. Food was a big thing. Right. And I just remember the seven and nine year old kind of like over my shoulder when I was making dinner, you know, like, what's this? What is this? You know, yeah, <laughs> saying, yeah. no, I'm like, how do you explain spaghetti and meatballs? I don't know, but it was, yeah. it was comical and, and they got it over time. And, and so there was lots of, lots of laughter and fun like that, but there also are a lot of challenges that come with kiddos who have that trauma history and who have prenatal exposure. So, um, you know, share with us what that adjustment was like as they, as they grew. Well, not, you know, not knowing anything about fetal alcohol effects or fetal alcohol syndrome, because that's, you know, affected what it was called. Um, there was no recognition of any of that. So anytime you adopt or foster, you know, older children, you know, there may be a history there of, of trauma. And so, and also the simple fact of taking them from their environment, um, you knew there was going to be some adjustment, but um, so it was trying to get over that hump of realizing what was, uh, naturally occurring and possibly what had biologically occurred, you know, what else could there be that had happened? And so, uh, that took a little while. Um, there was some hyperactivity, not a lot. I mean, the kids were amazing and, you know, you're so happy as a parent and you have these children within 18 months, you know, all these children <laughs> and you're just so elated, but you're going, gosh, you know, is this, is this okay? Something, you know, and then once they got into school, uh, two of them, there were some challenges and I, uh, started researching a lot, wondering what was going on with some behaviors I was seeing intellectually, uh, that wasn't the biggest challenge because I felt that there was an adjustment period from learning English and learning English in school, but there were some behaviors that seemed as though uh, several of them didn't understand the consequences of their actions. So I started researching all everything I could, which was coming out of Canada, because there really wasn't the resources here available um, that I could find. And then SAMHSA had, um, through the United States, had uh, some information on um, fetal alcohol syndrome. And it, it wasn't as complete as the information in Canada. So I started researching. I started writing my own IEP. I spoke to my social worker and uh, got in touch with her. So it was a lot of it was a lot of research that it was almost isolated research because no one understood it. The doctors didn't understand it. 
I went to a um, a few doctors, a geneticist, and I had all of the children checked because I'm like, gosh, you know, there's this fetal alcohol syndrome, facial features, yada, yada. So he evaluated them and he said, you keep doing what you're doing with behavior modification and what you need to do organization structure, because I told him what I was doing. He said, because that's what we're talking about here. Society, you know, the, the medical community has not caught up with this yet. He was amazing, wow. but still there was no diagnosis. There was nothing except misdiagnosing these kids with uh, incorrect information and uh there was nothing really that I was given that could help my children. Um, organization, I realized organization structure. And again, I was getting a lot of it out of Canada and uh, on what I should do. So I wrote my own IEPs up. I went to the schools. I handed out SAMHSA literature on FASD, which they had very limited amount. And I just did what I could do to help my children adjust and get them as far along as I could while they were still happy they were part of a family. So with a lot of variables going on here with trying to figure out what this was all about and still have a happy family. Wow. Could you just clarify, you said you mentioned SAMHSA a couple of times. What does that stand for? You know, I, I, it is, it, it is, um, I right off the bat, I should know this because, but it, SAMHSA has not dealt with FASD for so long. So I okay. can't tell you right off so the it's bat. So it's, it's an outdated acronym. That's, that's totally fine. Well, well, no, it's still very, it's still very present, but not in the FASD world the as much as it was. Yeah. All right. So, and then when you, when your kids came from Russia, were, were there any, was there any indication or diagnosis from Russia that they were prenatally exposed to alcohol? Well, in the in the paperwork, in the Russian paper, you know, paperwork for their from their birth families, there was uh, it was noted in all four of them. You know, yeah. it, it was it, it was noted in all the paperwork that there was alcohol exposure um, or I can't say alcohol exposure, but that the uh, the parent the parents drank. Yeah, that's what we were so told. They, right. So yeah. they, they were exposed to alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were told that the. I think it, it translated in court documents, parents abused alcoholic drinks. That's how it translated. Yeah. So yeah. we had that indication. Um, and I had also done a little research and knew that 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 prenatal yeah. exposure was common yeah. in kids adopted from Eastern Europe. So we highly, but we didn't even suspect it until the youngest one came home at age five. And he's the one that, you know, he was one of the ones that did get a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, has all of the symptoms, the facial features, all of the things. Um, and like you said, there wasn't, there wasn't anything out there. I mean, you were going, you, you were accessing information in Canada, uh, back right, then right. and what was available on the internet was doom and gloom, right? There yeah. Was, and, and there wasn't much, um, and SAMHSA is substance abuse and mental health services Okay, administration, just to let you know, um, it's a mouthful. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you with, with everything we parents go through, there are so many acronyms for everything yes. and uh, it's just keeping, keeping track and keeping up with all of it, which is very difficult and also keeping up with your kids and the schools. Yes. So, um, yeah. So did at one point, did, did anybody, I, I assume some of them at least got diagnosed, got a formal diagnosis? Well, not, not initially. It wasn't until my daughter was in, you know, we're going to jump, until she was an adult yeah, and that she was diagnosed. But uh, 
there we I had the children um, getting assistance from tutors, lots of tutoring. I tutored. My mother helped me tutor. Um, counseling in a, in, in a way of trying to get a diagnosis, ADHD, ODD, you get a diagnosis for everything but FASD because right. the, the, they cannot code it. In DSM-5, it's, it's uh, you know, um, it's, it's code 315.8. And, and these doctors are not going to code anything because there is really no code to diagnose FASD. So you're getting right. everything but and no one can put their fingers on the real treatment and interventions you need um, for their, these kids. So um, um, she didn't get diagnosed until she was older. And uh, my son, uh, I had a vocational, put him through testing for vocational rehab. At, I think it was 17, got him a job at a local grocery store and he did great. But they continued to, the manager's when he got overwhelmed and overstimulated, they thought he had a bad attitude because he would shut down. Well, he couldn't process the information. So within that period, uh, he, um, you know, it was he it was highly through the doctors and the people in the field, not the actual doctors. We all knew he was impacted by alcohol exposure. So remember, I was in that gray area of the very early years. They didn't have facial features, so they're not going to do the diagnosis of FAS. And FASD was just coming out because even fetal alcohol effects wasn't going to apply to my kids. I mean, one in 20 are impacted and only, what is it, less than 8% get an FAS diagnosis? Yeah. So that's a whole lot of kids that are being misdiagnosed yes. and not, not getting the treatment interventions they need. And as I make note of this, as I was raising my kids, it was all about the environment, keeping their environment with protective factors. I call it the environmental prescription because it's not a medicated, you know, it's, it's not medication. Two of my kids were put on, uh, we tried ADHD medicine or which also helped for oppositional defiant disorder and, um, the, having the environment, uh, prescription was the best thing that I could do for my kids, organization structure, understand when they're overwhelmed, they're dysregulated, uh, dismature, mm -hmm. all of these things were playing. And if you do not get them a healthy lifestyle of exercise and sleep and knowing what's going to come next and making it habit forming, uh, and if it's habit form, they'll do it without thinking. I try to put all these things in place. And, and actually, we had a, our, our lives were, with the exception of the challenges and the frustration from uh, some in the medical community and some in the schools. I, I was very, very lucky because a few of the schools really listened and understood because I supplied them with research on what my kids needed. Um, family life was, was pretty good, but it took a lot of work to help my kids. So the outside world, it looked like everything was great. The inside, it was a lot of work. I mean, a lot to keep them safe with protective factors um, during those early years and teenage years. And there's so much to be said on all of this. And yeah, uh, yeah, you were you were you self educated. You you educated yeah. yourself on FASD. Yeah, everything. Then you had to educate, and this is often the case, right? You had to educate everyone around at the school employment everywhere you went you had to educate everyone else and you were providing those protective factors at home applying all of those those supports at home so that they can be successful so exhausting and, 
and finding the fun in life because we celebrations of birthdays, Christmas, uh, you know, holidays were so important. And because I wanted them to have something to look forward to, uh, you know, as we all do, but really um, having them just, I don't want to say distracting them from the challenges that were going on, but including all this fun and family that was so important because that is, that's the priority. That's what you want for your kids, happy, right. healthy, and you want them to progress. And that progression thing was difficult when they don't always understand the consequences of the behaviors and then finding out what the triggers were for them when they're not processing information. I want to give you an example um, that is not in the book. <laughs> and um, my son, when he was about, I guess, 20, 21, I was moving a table in my house and it was just he and I in a big dining room table. And I was on one side lifting it because I had a vacuum underneath the table. And actually he was going to vacuum. He was the best vacuum. It caused a lot for him to vacuum and sweep. He was amazing. It's very methodical and very relaxing. Uh, you know, um, when you do these things, and I found that when I did these methodical things, it was very relaxing. But anyway, removing the table. So I had one end of the table with my hands under it, lifting it. And he was on the other side. He says, mom, I said, you know, please lift the table. He goes, I am lifting it. I'm trying to lift it. I said, but it's not lifting on your side. And, you know, six foot big, I'm, I'm five, nine, you know, just kind of willowy. And um, he's not lifting it. And I said, please lift the table. And he's, and I said, I'm lifting mine. He said, your side of the table must be heavier than mine. So I said, okay, hold on a minute, because I realized his brain was not connecting to his arms. They were not connecting. So I left my side of the table. I said, just stay just like you're lifting. And I went over to his side of the table where his fingers were underneath the table. I started pushing down on his forearms and say, lift, 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 lift. He started to lift the table as I was pushing on his forearms, making, you know, pushing harder on his forearms. And I said, okay, he got the table lifted. I ran over my side and said, let's lift the table. And I realized it was such a concrete thought for him that it must be heavier on my side of the table because, I mean, excuse me, on his side, because I could lift my side. And if his brain under this not so stressful, uh, not so stressful thing that I was asking him to do is lift the table with me, it couldn't connect. So therefore mm. my table side must be lighter. Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So he wasn't connecting. And I'm thinking if he has difficulty connecting this under a situation that he may seem stressed that he can't lift a table and it's not connecting, his hands are not connecting to his brain. What's happening at work when someone asks him to do something, he says, well, I am, you don't know what you're talking about. Yours must be easier than me. Mm. What happens here? And this was a physical example. Now this kid was an incredible ping pong player and he just incredible. He he's, you know, physically active, but he couldn't make that connection. Wow. And that to me, even though he was, you know, 18 or 19, I can't remember what it was. I had already explored everything that I could on FASD. When that happened, it just really changed my thinking that it's not just what they uh, perceive or, or um, experience with someone telling them to do something, but when they're physically or unable, incapable of do something because their brain is working differently. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's, that's that to me yeah. really made me realize life can be really hard for someone who's not making the connection at the time they need it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I have a few other examples like that, but that to me was a big eye opener that day. And I think, oh my gosh, um, this is an amazing kid who works so hard and that connection wasn't being made. Yeah. And you can see where, especially as our kids get older, um, how this can have a negative impact on on them and can and can get them into trouble because it it, it reminds me somewhat one of my one of my my 20 year old has he's a volunteer firefighter and um he came home the one night telling me about a call he was out on a call long story short there was two guys that obviously had been drinking and driving they ran off the road and hit hit a shed and then they fled the scene of the accident because they right. didn't want to get caught drinking. Um, so the when the fire department, the police show up, everybody's looking for these guys. And of course, they didn't turn up until the next day when they would no longer test positive for, for drinking and driving. But my so my son, you know, t- tells me the story. He said, yeah, he said, so if you leave the scene of an accident, that's the only thing you're going to get ticketed for because um the next day you can come back and he said the they be, because they didn't get a DWI their insurance will pay for the damages to their truck and to the the person's shed and so his brain like he totally misunderstood like he said I could leave the scene of an accident and not get in trouble and I'm like but why would you leave the scene of an accident like if you hit a deer we live in a rural yeah, area yeah. you're not going to leave the scene of an accident those guys left the scene of an accident because they didn't want to get a DWI because that would make them it put them in a lot of trouble so yeah. you wouldn't ever leave the scene of an accident that, but that's why they did it. But he's, right. he, his brain couldn't, you know, he thought he'd stumbled upon this great thing that, well, you could leave the scene of, and he just he, totally misconnected all of those yeah. parts and didn't understand that. And of course he's in the fire department. So he's exposed to a lot of those kinds of things. And I'm like, that's not how this works. And you right. never want to leave the scene of an accident. And those guys should have gotten a ticket because now they're going to drink and drive again. And next time they could hit somebody or kill somebody or themselves. So, but, but it was just like his brain, the way he processed that information, he he didn't have an accurate understanding of how it went because he was taking this very literal, right. That very concrete. Well, if you need to get, if, if, if you leave the scene of an accident, you're not only, you're only going to get in trouble for leaving the scene of the accident. And I'm like, that's not, that's not right. And, 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 you know, Sandra, when I think of that, which is the processing of information yeah. and my son who's lifting a table and it's yeah. the same table on my side or his side, his brain yeah. is not connecting it, but he's telling me my side is lighter. That's right. why I can lift it. It makes no sense, but it was not the reasoning of, uh, it was, he was experiencing the lack of ability for his arms to connect to his brain. So what happens socially if he's with a group of people and he's not connecting something everybody else sees that makes no sense so socially when they're not getting those social cues and they're not connecting it makes life hard for them socially yes yeah and you know uh, i mean fasd is is you know prenatal alcohol exposure is a traumatic brain injury it's yes. just a different way so we address uh we address uh tbis let's address this and yeah. um yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable. So all I could think of was, oh my gosh, when he's at work and 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 something isn't connecting, right. or and and there's no one there to say, no, my side of the table is light is the same as yours. And here, let me go ahead and push on your arms, and I take them through the therapy to understand this. They're not going to have that, and yeah. we need this understood. We need FASD understood. Yes. 
They have strengths and gifts and they have needs and their needs are not being met. Absolutely. Their needs are not being met. And so this is why you advocate. This is why I advocate. And it's up to us to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like we've been talking about here, the the older our kids get, um, the more serious the implications are because they can get into a lot of trouble. And yet with the dismaturity and that, that lack of, you know, understanding and processing, they could find themselves in a lot of trouble that they didn't even know that they were getting into. Yeah. Um, so, so share with us a little bit, cause I know, and I want to, I highly recommend your book, the accomplice. Um, and you tell the story of a couple of your kids throughout this book as, as they are entering adulthood and, and, and those challenges, but um, share with us a little bit more about some of those things that you encountered as they became teenagers and then uh, young adults. Um. The uh, similar to what I was saying about the experience with the the table, um, you know, there were at one point, I think they were at four different schools and some of the schools could address the FASD, some couldn't. And then I ended up homeschooling my daughter, um, even the school that she was attending because FASD isn't recognized. I cannot fault any of these schools for them not addressing FASD for what it is. So that was a huge, huge challenge for me. And then I wanted to make sure each of my children received the opportunity to explore their gifts and talents. So one might have been, uh, she was very active with the knitting group at church and they were all adults. And that's why I homeschooled her during her uh, junior and senior year and then into some tech junior college type environment. Um, So I wanted them, you know, ping pong was huge because it actually ping pong is one of the best sports for the brain. Just to let your listeners know, right, left hemisphere. It's like horse movement, the movement of the horse, right, and left hemisphere. This is huge for anyone who wants to, uh, you know, increase their children's, uh, you know, brain ability, I guess. Um, Ping pong, huge tennis, pickleball. These are huge. Um, and uh, group sports aren't always the best, but um, but anyway, it was really exploring my children's gifts and talents and helping them at the same time, uh, making sure academically they were able to keep up with where they were in school, which was very difficult. So there were a lot of tutors. I tutored a lot. The son I was talking about, he was the hardest working kid. And I look back at that now and it just brings me to tears thinking how hard he worked and what I didn't know. What I didn't know and how hard he had to work just to get through and, and, and to get his education, his his degree. Um, he was at an ROTC at a public school. And uh, thank God he had that uniform on. But the kids were pretty mean, unfortunately, because he didn't understand the social cues always. But mm-hmm. he also is an incredible. Uh, he took piano lessons and um, loved it. And that was really, uh, really increased his confidence. So, um, but through all of this, there were great challenges. And when the screen time became more common in school, that's what created most of the problems I started to experience. Uh, All schools started to have, you know, they had computer labs, which was Mm -hmm. okay. But when the phones and screen time came out and my kids wanted them, yeah, there's not, first of all, I couldn't afford it. You know, I, I was a mom raising my kids and I couldn't afford all the things that, people thought you should have. And plus I knew that it just, it just didn't seem like a good 
um, hobby, I guess, for my kids. Um, and uh, which it seems to be a lot of kids just get them because it's what you do. Right. You know, it's, it's fun. They all so, want them. Everybody has one. Yeah. So you need to have them. They're not necessarily, ne- they're not a necessity, you know, that early, but the school started to have the computers and then uh, that was a problem. And so I had just the flip phones that had nothing on them, but uh, screen time became a real problem. Homework had to be done on screen time, screen it, it just, you change the entire home life because of screen time and protecting your kids. And there were not the protective factors were screen time. So there were some issues that became a real problem and could have gone into uh, it, it, the protective factors weren't there with screen time. Let's right. put it that way. And my kids weren't of the age that they would be arrested for some things that were going on with screen time. And this was a common occurrence for other parents with children who weren't impacted by FASD, but those kids had the, didn't, those kids, a lot of them understood the consequences of their actions, where in in the situation that I'm in, they didn't quite, and it was uh, really, really difficult to keep them protected. So I thought, I'm not gonna have to worry about keeping protected because they're not getting it, you know? It was easier to do without, but then as the schools continued to increase the amount of screen time they had to have, then you're having to either fight the system or figure out another way to do it to keep your kids safe. And I think for me, that was the hardest thing uh, to keep my kids in a protective factor uh, with protective factors was the uh, the screen time. The yeah, screen time is, it's really exacerbated the symptoms of FASD. I, I had read, I read a book, um, the name of it, of course, is going to escape me. The author is, I believe, is Molly DeFrank, but it was all about unplugging from screen time. And yeah. it was a book for, you know, any every family. Uh, and she went over in the book all of the negative effects of screen oh, yeah. time as far as the, the, the symptoms, you know, how, how it, it, it affects sleep, it affects behavior, it affects focus and attention and all of these different things. And everything that she listed, every one of those was 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 basically a primary symptom of FASD. So if you have a kiddo who has an FASD and they have these primary symptoms and then you give them all that screen time, you're making every one of those symptoms worse. Right. And and, um, if someone has a concussion or TBI, they say, take off, don't, don't be on the screen. Don't be on any screen because it overstimulates the brain. It doesn't allow the brain to heal. And our children already are impacted by some type of brain trauma because of alcohol exposure. I mean, it's as simple yeah. as that. So not only are they going to morph into what they see, it's addictive. And, yes. and a lot of this is addiction and they're not going to sleep. And, um, and, and then they morph into what they see. Like I said, no one on the internet is going to say, Oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, they're not going to be right. on those websites. So, yeah. and, and, and protective factors weren't there. So screen time to me, I call it the digital devil. Mm, <laughs> good just, one. Yeah, good one. you know, I mean, yeah. and and uh, and I was in the middle of that whole gray area when they were in their teens that all this stuff was happening, yeah. and um, the information was out there, but it wasn't in the public the way that should be to protect our kids. And now that information is getting out there more, but um, y- you know, if, if you got a broken leg or something, you're not going to walk all over it, or it's not going to heal. And, you know, if you're trying to heal your brain and do what's best with your brain, you're not going to overstimulate it and overuse it with this flashing and cutting and noise. And, you know, besides 
what they experience with with the possibility of morphing into the behaviors that they see on it. Yeah. And, um, the, and the easy access to pornography, because I have, oh, I, it's have awful. I have boys, right? Te- like yep. te- teenage and young adult boys. And with this disability comes that impulse control problem and not understanding consequences and, you know, just, just having to police their devices all the time. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and one of mine, one of mine, my older one does have, he had social media and I would periodically go through his phone and Instagram um, is you can easily access porn through Instagram. And I feel like a yep. lot of parents don't know that I have, I have, my Instagram account is public because of what I do with our right our, business our is a different network, story, right? But every Physical day, yeah. every day, someone will, you know, and I don't know if it's one of those bots or if it's an actual person, but every single day I have to block people. And it's always, it looks like a female and it's like, check out my video. And they'll like, you know, they'll like my story that I post on Instagram or they'll, or, or they'll have liked a post. And I've learned because if you click that, it will lead you to pornography. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we have to make sure, so you know, I told my son, no more, no more, no more Instagram. You're not allowed to have Instagram. Um, and it, and if you do have kids with Instagram, either they shouldn't have it or you want them to, it needs to be set to private because, because all it takes is one click and they have it. We've tried blocking YouTube. It yeah. is virtually impossible to get YouTube yeah. off of an iPhone. Um, and now if we have, like, we all have smart TVs, yeah. you can easily access YouTube from your smart TV. I didn't even know that for the longest time. And then I yeah. stumbled upon the fact that my son had been watching inappropriate YouTube videos. Yeah. Uh, when I actually said, oh, we have YouTube. I'm going to look at this this Christian comedian on, you know, we'll watch it on the TV tonight. But when I went to the YouTube you know, app on our TV, I could see all of the things that had been searched right, by my son, which I'm like, oh, yeah. this is not good. So th- they can find it and it just opens up that whole can of worms. So it does screen. And, and you know, the thing is, if it, it, raising them and then the schools have it in, you know, the schools are increasing the, you know, and, and taking and priding themselves on the screen time and the video and all the internet. Now I know schools that are priding themselves on cutting it all off now because they realize, I mean, there are a lot of schools yes. now that are, won't even have it for these kids because they know it's not good for the kids. But um, um, yeah, the screen time, uh, you know, it, it was just a real, real problem. And, and especially as you're trying to, uh, you don't want it to be a punishment punitive, you know, you, you don't, but that's the way they're going to think if I can have it like everybody else. So you feel like you're socially, um, you know, setting them back when you really are not socially setting them back, you're protecting them. Yeah. Like many parents are doing it for our kids. It becomes a crisis if right. they get involved with stuff they shouldn't be involved with. And uh, that's really difficult. Um so, um, yeah. but so as your kids got older, yeah. um, you know, what were some of the, like, say symptoms of FASD that led to those bigger problems that you, oh, the, the oppositional defiant disorder, ODD diagnosis, um, uh, having difficulty in school, social, uh, behaviors, not understanding the consequences now. Uh, you know, they had each other to play with and hang out with. And we played a lot of ping pong. We we had a lot of outside activities that we did. We were very active in church. Um, there were altar servers, uh, you know, took part in, in the church programs, youth groups. So I, I really gave 
my kids as much leeway and I wanted them to have as much independence as possible. And I'm still was discovering what this FASD was all about because I still knew there were areas which that could put my children in a crisis, but I didn't know the extent. I was just thankful they weren't there in this crisis as they were aging. So um, the ODD, you know, some of the schools said, well, okay, I see your daughter has difficulty with her planner. She just needs to come up at the end of the day to have the teacher sign off on it. Well, she couldn't remember to come up at the end of the day to have her teacher sign off on it because that was part of the problem. And also confabulation where they would believe what they thought was true and they would reason it the way they think something was true, which looks like crazy lying. When it's really confabulation, it's clinical lying. Um, that was a real problem because uh, what people don't understand, uh, it, it's trying to understand which is a lie, which is they don't understand, or which is clinical and a confabulation of the brain, kind of the hiccups of the neurotransmitters and how the brain is operating. So all that, that in itself is difficult to understand beyond mm-hmm. all the other things. So all of that together, I just kept researching and 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 trying to learn as much as I can and then feeding this information to the doctors of schools and and some of them were receptive some of them weren't some said oh there Mrs. you know you know there's Melissa again you know and she and then I would go to the teacher before uh you know the year before and I said you know you, you found this out could you go ahead and take a take a little talk with that teacher and so by six weeks into the school year, or, you know, two months into the school year, the teacher would say, the counselor would say, okay, now that teacher understands what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, um, you know, the the ODD, like I said, the ADHD type of behaviors, um, not hyperactive, but not quite getting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And just working like crazy to get through school. Um, So learning challenges and yeah, the academic challenges were pretty rough, but it's not all about academic challenges. I found it more in the adaptive behaviors, because as we know, FASD, it's an adaptive behavior deficit. So if something is new and they haven't experienced it, it could be very, very um, scared for them. They become anxious and nervous. So anxiety is huge uh, with these kids. And there was also slow processing. you know, there was just a lot of different variables going on. And I was juggling trying to figure it out and also trying to make a happy home for these kids and uh, explore and help them with their strengths and their gifts. But their needs weren't being met the way they should have been met because the medical community, the academic community don't understand this. So that's like someone knowing, you know, what this reminds me of. I have a pair of glasses on and you do, but people have their prescription. And what we're doing is we're putting the wrong prescription, the wrong lenses is someone's glasses. We're expecting our kids to wear glasses that may work for somebody else. So they're getting the glasses maybe because it may be they're being diagnosed with everything else, but then we're expecting them to put them on and to function properly when this is not the correct prescription for them. Right. You see what I mean? So it makes everything worse. And um, so uh, that putting all that, those challenges uh, all during the elementary and the school year into high school, again, it was a gray area. The information wasn't out there like it should be. Um, Luckily, uh, I did then find out about NOFAS, which is FASD United now. That was a huge help. So starting about, I guess, I really became 
a strong advocate. I spoke at a conference in Georgia. I went to every one of their seminars in Georgia. They didn't have one on FASD. And I basically uh, found out about the um, FASD resolution through the American uh, Bar. Mm -hmm. And Billy Edwards contributed to it. I did a cold call to Billy Edward, got him on the phone, and he was fabulous. And he sent me the link, and I used that information as the carrot to get FASD on the docket in the state of Georgia. So the state of Georgia used to, I think it was six of them a year for like 10 years, and they were about to close out these seminars, and there wasn't one on FASD. And I contacted them and said, if you would have one on FASD, they said, oh, we're all full, filled up. I prayed about it. The person that was supposed to be giving their seminar dropped out. They called me FASD within. So, um, but that's when I really started. That's when I really gave my first presentation. And I said, thank God my kids aren't in trouble. No drugs, no alcohol, no this or that. But we struggled. There were challenges along the way, but nothing that would criminally get them in trouble or I'd be on the streets. And within two years, it all changed. It all changed, but FASD information still wasn't being diagnosed. It still wasn't out there. And that's when uh, a lot uh, changed and I realized I had to do more. So, um, yeah. What do you feel comfortable? Because I, I, I want folks to be able to to, to really read your story in, in, yeah. in your book, but just just a couple of the, the main points of things that you were dealing with as your kids became young adults. Well, as I became young adults, screen time was more uh, um, available. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't control where they had screen time at work or, you know, they were getting to be adults. I mean, anything after 18 years of age, people would look at me like, you know, I was crazy because these are adults. Why they, they talk and act perfectly normal. Why are you so worried about them? They know that if they did this, they would be in trouble. So as I'm advocating and giving presentations um, and learning more about FASD, and my goal was the more I could give a presentation, all this is volunteer advocacy, then the more I would learn from the people who are also trying to do the same thing I'm doing. So there was a, there was a reason why I did it uh, because I learned more. And uh, my, my children, uh, adult children now were finding their way on the internet. Uh, I had a daughter that I wrote about in the book who is just loving, wonderful. And she hooked up with the wrong people. And it came through uh, a work situation on the internet. And she ended up uh, in jail pregnant and living on the street for four years after she got out of jail. Um, and the mental health courts did not accept her diagnosis of NDPAE, which is neural behavioral disorder, prenatal alcohol exposure, because the mental health courts didn't recognize FASD. Um, they have drug court. And so the public defender, I had to educate her on all of this, but uh, you know, before she ended up in jail, she was on the street and I had to find her. Mm -hmm. So the book takes you through not only the experience I had with my children trying to keep them safe, but the advocacy I was trying to do at the same time to educate others so that when I found her, people in the state of Georgia would be more educated on FASD. And I just couldn't seem to work fast enough because there was no real no support. Um, I'd been in Washington several times, in fact, with my son 
who ended up uh, also uh, having challenges that he couldn't get out of a situation, uh, which I write about in the book. And um, it was crisis. But he was in Washington with me as uh, before the crisis, of course. And he went with me to Washington to speak to Congress in our district uh, for the state of Georgia. We went to our legislators, our senators in our house to educate them on it, but nothing ever happened. So this FASD Respect Act has come so far, mm -hmm. but to me, it's been a lengthy, lengthy process. So as I'm advocating and trying to help my children, my adult children, my daughter's on the street. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to educate everyone because you can't work fast enough because when we do find her, she needs services. There are no services, uh, unfortunately, in the state of Georgia. And so my advocacy is trying to get those who are in this industry of medical, educational, professional, the law, the criminal justice system to understand this so we can help all of those who are impacted, who are homeless, they're self-medicating they're in jail. And so um, the book is about my experience of trying to advocate in a system that doesn't understand FASD and mm -hmm. uh, the challenges that a family can go through. And along the way, there are other situations of families that just had popped up during these experiences that I added in the book to show that uh, there are many, many families that are dealing with this and they don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we find all the time when I'm, when I'm doing training, when I'm speaking, um, families don't know, and they, they do need to know. And in, and in my, um, sphere of influence with adoptive and foster and kinship families, every one of them, every parent in that space needs to have this education because most likely they are caring for a child or will care for a child that has been prenatally exposed. So it's so important. The earlier we can get a diagnosis, the sooner we can get those supports. So, so important. Right. Um, Sandra, when, um, when I was presenting on FASD and all, it's all volunteer advocacy. Um, and the first presentation, my children, you know, they weren't in trouble yet. And I was thankful, but that didn't change. I mean, that, that quickly changed within a year to two years because of uh, screen time, they became adults. But I had presented and, and the only reason why I wrote the book, and I got to tell you, this was not therapeutic. Um, it, the only reason I wrote the book is because when I presented and told the story, people were saying, why, why? have you not read a book? Why aren't you writing a book about this? And I'm thinking, first of all, where am I going to find the time? How do I do this? And I realized, I mean, in 2013, I started writing proclamations for the state of Georgia. So there's been a proclamation with the exception of one year during the COVID that the governor of Georgia has signed on to this proclamation. And at least I could get the information about foster care and adoption and um, underserved communities who are not, this is not being addressed for them. So I started off with that. And then it kind of had a trickle effect of more people heard about it, but I still was not open to writing a book because I knew the time I knew I'd have to re-enter my life into those times while I was still living it. And then I prayed a lot about it. What am I going to do? Prayed and prayed. And then I realized uh, I've got to make sure the information is out there to other parents, caregivers, and, and, and adults with FASD to get the story out that they could understand. And if it's in a storytelling way, this is what I'm going to do. So that's really how I came about on writing this book. 
Yeah. So the, the, the title of the book is The Accomplice uh, by Melissa Jacobus. Where can our listeners grab a copy of your book? Amazon. Go on to Amazon and uh, put The Accomplice, Melissa Jacobus. I will tell you the foreword was written by uh, Billy Edwards, William Edwards, and Dr. Larry Bird. I always say the book is just an intro to their forward because their forward is unbelievable. Yeah. So um, yeah. Um, it's incredible. And Barnes and Nobles has it. There's a lot of small independent bookstores that I have just driven to these bookstores and they see it and they take it, um, that have put it on their shelves. So, uh, you know, you just, if you put in the accomplice, Google it, you will, you, it'll come up and hopefully it'll be maybe in your town or something. I don't know, but I know you can get it on Amazon and, and I'm sorry, also FAS United has it there. If you want to purchase it there, I had sent a bunch of books there for them uh, as a, as a donation for people to get it there also. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll make sure we put a link in the show notes so that our listeners can grab a copy soup simple because I, I highly recommend riveting story I couldn't put it down um very very well done um also we were we were talking about your advocacy work so what can our listeners do what can we do now um in this space of advocacy what what would be the top things that that parents can do right now to help advance the cause of FASD awareness okay well besides them being trying to help their children get all the information they can, uh, the medical community, I'm not saying all the medical community, because there's a lot of the medical community that recognize FASD, but, um, you know, you want to provide them with information. And until the FASD Respect Act passes, it is hard to get a hold of this information as credible information uh, so that they can uh, use the correct diagnosis for your, your children. So I would say the number one thing to bring awareness is the FASD Respect Act, and the 118th Congress, it's Senate Bill 1800 and House Bill HR 3946. FASD United has a website, just put FASD United. Um, we need advocates in every state to go and, and contact your House members and your senators mm-hmm. and have them co-sponsor the FASD Respect Act. Also, you can get um, those in your medical community, your schools, businesses, nonprofits, agencies in your state and in your uh, cities on endorsing the FASD Respect Act. That shows a clear message to our Congress that we are paying attention and FASD has an awful lot of support. Um, and the sooner we can get this pa- this passed, the better for our children and all adults. There are so many, one in 20 kids, are, adults are impacted. So we have lots and lots of adults who are walking around wondering why they might be in recovery, wondering why they can't get into recovery, in jail, homeless. And again, FASD, uh, those who are impacted, it's a traumatic brain injury. They have strengths and gifts, but they, a lot of them, it is, they need to reach their potential for happiness, fulfillment, and their needs are not being met. My children are gifted, I love them. They are have strengths, but doggone it, they deserve to have their needs met. Yeah. They deserve to have their needs met. Uh, so um, that's what this is all about. So get yeah. get the uh, FASD Respect Act, parent, uh, parents, grandparents, caregivers, those who know someone with FASD or if someone sees this cause and understands it, get involved. 
Yeah. Well, we will put a link in the show notes to FASD United and to the Respect Act so our listeners can very easily go to that website uh, right. and just endorse it, sign up for it um, so that you are a supporter of it. Definitely. So Melissa, as we wrap up, um, I appreciate all of the amazing work that you're doing and all of just, just you were a fierce mama bear advocate, right? And mm-hmm. making a difference, trying to fight for your kids and fight for our kids. So many of our listeners are adoptive, foster and kinship caregivers. You know, many I know are listening because they have kids with an FASD. Some may not realize or recognize that that might be going on, but would you, would you, as we wrap up, share with us some advice, some encouraging words for our parents listening? Um, Never give up hope. Mm. Um, Hope is uh, just don't give up hope for your children. Don't give hope on the relationship you can have with your children. Don't give hope up hope that, uh, I mean, the FASD respect is going to pass with all of us participating. There is power in numbers and there is the power in prayer. Make sure these caregivers, adoptive parents, foster care, take care of yourselves, have that time for you. Uh, Self-care is not selfish. You have to do it. Um, and uh, know that you are not alone in this. And that's another reason why I wrote the book. And that's the reason why you're here. Yeah. Such good, good words of wisdom and advice and encouragement. Melissa, thank you so much for all that you are doing on behalf of the FASD community. And, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Sandra, for this conversation, for bringing awareness and for allowing me to talk about the importance of understanding FASD and what we need to do for our kids. Thank you. Wow. What a great conversation with Melissa Jacobus. I hope that you were inspired and encouraged by her story. I know it's a hard story. She she details more of the hard in her book, The Accomplice. I hope that you will grab a copy. We'll put a link in the show notes so that you can remember the name and you can go on and find it on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books. Um, so I hope that you'll check that out. And if you suspect um, that, that the children that you are raising may have been prenatally exposed to alcohol, um, reach out because we have some great workshops. Um, I can help you with uh, learning the symptoms of FASD, with um, understanding how to parent and what kind of tools that you need to be able to accommodate and better support your kiddos. Um, so some of our training I mentioned at the top of the show that you can go onto our website, justicefororphansny.org and click on our training so that you can uh, register for any of those. Also, um, fasdunited.org is an, a phenomenal organization where you can learn more as well. And you can go on there and um, sign up to uh, endorse the FASD Respect Act. So we'll have links in the show notes that you can check out um, to learn all of that. Uh, please make sure to, again, follow uh, and uh, like uh, our our podcast, our uh, social media. We're on uh, Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. You can check all of that out and follow us. Um, greatly appreciate when you do that. And I am appreciative that you spent your valuable time with us today. And I'm grateful to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. 
please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.